0: Hello, and welcome to the BBXX podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to bring you the life education that you didn't get at home or in school about sexuality, intimacy, and communication. On today's show, we're talking with Peggy Ornstein. We're gonna be learning about young women's sexuality, the negative effects of pop culture in the media, and how the Dutch are basically better sex educated at 14 years old than the average adult in the US
1: don't want girls' early experiences to be something they have to get over. I Was Not Raped is a very low bar for yeah. a sexual experience. Right? Why do we always make the woman into this passive recipient of penisness? Peggy is a New York Times
0: best-selling author of the book Girls and Sex, has been featured on NPR's All Things Considered, and was named by the Columbia Journalism Review as one of the 40 women who changed the media business in the past 40 years. Learn more on our website and social media at bbxx.world. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We have the honor of having Mm -hmm. Peggy Orenstein on board with us today. So I'd like to kind of just start out with to give people an idea of your work and kind of the the motivation and the inspiration behind it to have you talk a little bit about how you got started, where your personal narrative comes Mm -hmm. into play throughout your work.
1: Well, I mean i always I always start with the personal and girls and sex it's sort of an a, a couple, there's a a bunch of different things that led me there um, part of it is that I have a daughter who was heading to high school um, and so I was really thinking anew about these issues that have always been percolating for me but you know one thing that I really struggled i, I never got this into the book, but I kept trying I kept putting it in taking it out, putting it in taking it out. Was was sort of my own experience as mm-hmm. a girl, um, which was very positive, and I think that that was partly why I was so taken aback by what I was hearing from young women. Partly because my mom was really positive. I was definitely told, you know, nobody buys the cow when they can get the milk for free, and this kind of like wait till you're married. I mean, literally, my dad said that to I me. I don't know if literally. I've ever
0: heard that expression. You haven't? Before. No. What oh, does that even my God.
1: mean? Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Like why would you marry somebody if you can have sex with them? That's what And your dad told you that my dad sat me down before. That's I so be. insightful. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> they they changed, you yeah. know, they changed. I don't want to put my parents down, but my mom so once you got married though. Right. My mom was really clear that, like, I didn't really didn't would be plugging my ears and humming because my mom would tell me how great her sex life was with my dad. That's amazing. And they would leave um, books around the house, like every you know, back in that era, everything. That was how was you sex. passively
0: educated people. It was like they'll probably find this.
1: You, well, it wasn't probably. It was like where I would like couldn't miss it. So you know, I I read all the ch- you know the chapter on female masturbation and thought hmm. <laughs> When I was, like, 12. and th- yeah. I better go try that out. But even more than that, I feel like there was this time sort of after the sexual revolution, yeah, before um, there started to be the backlash against uh, choice and abortion. Abortion was, was available for teenagers. Birth control was available for teenagers. The AIDS crisis hadn't started yet. And I think there was this little sliver of a moment where for girls you could – actually explore your sexual sexuality in the right circumstances. Not everybody, not everywhere. But, like, we all went our freshman year of college and went into the stu- you a know, room in the student union and took specula and flashlights and mirrors and dropped our pants and examined ourselves. I mean, like, there was a thing. There was an, yeah. It was like there was a politicization of female sexual pleasure. Well, I know came from sort of a, a particular branch of second-wave feminism and, like, trickled down to my generation. Um, and then I think that door slammed shut in the mid '80s or the early '80s with AIDS and the Reagan administration and various things. But so my experience, and also we didn't have frats when I went to college. We didn't have alcohol either, for that matter. Um, so we were having sober sex that with a politicization of the female orgasm, and it was great, you know. So so I thought that was just going to keep on marching forward. And when I started talking to girls today about what their sex lives were like, I was kind of stunned, to be honest, because it was clear that they felt like, yeah, sure, we can have sex, we can do what we want, but they weren't enjoying it. Right. And that contradiction, I just was like, I I was really blown away by it. So that was sort of a lot of what motivated me.
0: Yeah. And that's so interesting because it, it literally seems as though things have gone backwards. As you're saying, you're talking about at this peak of potential for this revolution and then now with, at least speaking from my own personal experience, totally the opposite and much more closed off. And so you, you attributed that a little bit to AIDS, but what else would you say has maybe played a
1: role in that? You know, people ask me all the time, what changed? And, and again, you know, I was, I'm talking about a very specific demographic, but I felt like that demographic that I was in was a, there was this potential for trickle down and for a broader, Idea. I think it was a combination of the rise of then the moral majority. So what you know eventually became like the Tea Party and the New Right and all these people. Sex education became super political to them, and that was their like stake in the ground that they wanted changed. Um, and Reagan gave that to them with abstinence-only education. Uh, the AIDS crisis made sex equal death for a whole generation of people. Um, That took a lot of the fun away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then simultaneously, the commercial culture, a lot of the rules were dropped around what they could depict. And that became a much more aggressively objectified culture. And then you had the internet, the rise of the internet and social media. And then, you know, to be fair, not to just totally stick it to the right, Bill Clinton, And I did not have sex with that woman, and not defining oral sex as sex and all of that did not do anybody any favors either.
0: Right. And so BBXX actually started through an art project I did in college, and it came out of kind of this conversation I overheard. It was in a a personal narrative class in which you could ask these super personal questions. One person was in the hot seat, and one of the questions asked in this kind of intimate classroom experience and environment was, what's the best sex you've ever had? And this girl answered, well, um, and this was her second long-term relationship, and she said, to be honest, it's, it's never really been that great. And, you know, we tried for a while, um, but now we just kind of focus on him, and I just enjoy the experience. And I remember thinking, frustrated from my own experience's lack of information, too throughout life thinking why is this a story i hear so much why is this the norm like this is the default
1: i mean that's the script that's the script the script focuses on male pleasure sarah mcclelland who's a psychologist at the university of michigan frames this as a social justice issue which i think is really great and she uh coined the phrase that i use all the time which is intimate justice Mm -hmm. and that's this idea that sex is political as well as personal so just like you know who vacuums the floor, who does the dishes Mm -hmm. in your house, and it brings up similar issues around gender inequality and economic disparity and physical and mental well-being and violence. And what intimate justice urges to do is ask these questions. So who is entitled to engage in an experience? Who is entitled to enjoy that experience? Who is the primary beneficiary of that experience? How does each partner define good enough? And, you know, yeah, those are really hard questions, I think, for a lot of adult women and traumatic questions to confront. When I start talking about this in a crowd of parents, I can see on women's faces this sort of almost terror mm-hmm. go across their face or this sorrow. And I just kept thinking when we're talking about girls, I just I don't want girls' early experiences to be something they have to get over.
0: Right. And I just think it's so interesting, and I'd love you to speak a little more about the findings Um mm-hmm what you found throughout these conversations with so many young girls, but then also how a lot of the patterns don't change as these girls age and become young women or adult women. There seem to be so many of the same conversations, the same patterns and the same just kind of lack of information, sometimes lack of empowerment.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing I always talk about is the American psychological (laughs) clitoridectomy. And, and I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of funny, but in flip, but it's really real. And it's the way that we complete. I mean, I just saw, did you get that book when you were little, uh, Karen Keeping a View, the American Girl book? No. Most girls get that for their puberty book.
0: I got nothing. Oh well, I got zero right. things. <laughs> I didn't even get a map that says here's your clitoris. So well, I here's had to the thing: Google it when I was twenty because I decided maybe I don't have one. Maybe that's right. why I don't have oh, orgasms. That's the horror is that girls and I'm just like, so how is that a thing that anyone any. ever thinks? If you're thinking that. We would never ever, think
1: that. We would never allow that level of ignorance about your elbow, no, or your nose, no. I mean, it's crazy. So Karen Keeping, and I'll get back to the American Psychological Clitoridectomy, but the Karen Keeping of you 2 which is the second book, they have a map of the external genital, female genitalia, right? They don't name. You're kidding me. The clitoris, no. You're it's kidding. there's like sort of a mark there, but. You know, they've got the labia, they've got the vulva, they've got, you know, the urethra. Every, what are they afraid They've got, like, periods, pregnancy, Exactly. AIDS. So this is exactly no This is my American clitor, uh, psychological clitoridectomy. When girls are born, when, when parents have their babies, they statistically have more of a likelihood of naming their, all their boys' body parts. So they'll say, like, here's your pee-pee or something like that. Girls, they go right from navel to knees. And there's no better way to make something unspeakable than not to give it a name.
0: It's like Voldemort.
1: Yep. Then you go to and your. And then people exactly, become
0: afraid of it.
1: Vulvamort. And oh, then you go <laughs> to your um, to your puberty education class, right? If you have yeah. one. If you have and one. And you, you learn don't. boys have erections and ejaculations, girls, periods and unwanted pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Not the same you know, and then you see that in you know that thing that looks like a steer's head or a yes. George O'Keefe yes. painting like the internal exactly thing, like and Georgia it O'Keefe. grays out between the legs. So you never say vulva. I mean, even the vagina monologues—it's the vulva monologues. It's not the. Va- I mean, we right. never say vulva. We never say clitoris. No <clears throat> surprise: fewer than half of girls age 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. That will not come as a surprise to you, I guess. No, sadly. And uh, then they go into their partnered experience, right. and we expect in some miraculous way magical thinking that they're going to think it's about them that they're going to feel like they have you know that they can voice their wants their limits their needs or even know what those would be
0: right if you don't even if you've never had an orgasm even know what what those would be
1: right even if you have a partner who says what feels good to you right how would you know
0: what I don't know what the
1: definition of feels good is what is the definition of feels good right Exactly. it might
0: just be I enjoy your company like that it might be
1: it doesn't hurt right it might be it doesn't hurt. Right. And we allow that. We allow, you know, this, that's why one of the re- things that I, you know, I, I'm so grateful that we're having this umbrella conversation about consent in the culture. Mm-hmm. So important, so important. But it's a baseline, right. you know? I was not raped is a very low bar for yeah. a sexual experience. Right. And that's the other reason why I wanted to write Girls and Sex was that I wanted to talk about what happens after yes and how we can right. provide an experience that is reciprocal that's mutual that's enjoyable and kind of just raise
0: that bar because i think a lot of women too think oh that's just how it is because they don't have that comparison their friends that haven't right. had these great experiences or they think oh that's just how partners are you know not exactly. necessarily the most generous versus just raising their bar and being like no there are you know Men or women, in some cases, right. who genuinely value your pleasure, your orgasm, more than their own. Right. Like the bar is higher, so everybody just needs to kind right. of raise their values and adjust to that, and leave behind all the bullshit.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that that Sarah McClelland, who the intimate justice woman, talks about, she does a lot of studies on um, sexual satisfaction, mm-hmm. the how people define good enough part, and so young women. Are more likely. She does all her stuff with college students, so she's looking at college students. Are more likely, not not entirely, but more likely than young men to define their pleasure by their, or their satisfaction yeah. by their partner's pleasure. So they'll say, "This is in, in, well, both uh, in same sex and other sex encounters." So they'll say, um, "If he had a good time, I had a good time."
0: Right. Exactly. Like and that girl.
1: men are more likely, again, not exclusively, but more likely to define their satisfaction by their own pleasure. So. Like by their orgasm, like if I had a good time, right. I had a good time. And so, you know, and bad sex. Girls will say, you know, we use words like humiliating, degrading, painful. Boys, guys never use that language. So if you go into an experience hoping that it won't hurt, wanting to feel close to your partner, expecting he'll have an orgasm, yeah, you're going to be satisfied if that low bar is reached. And there's nothing wrong, you know, with wanting to feel close to your partner. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel good. Orgasm is not the only measure of a sexual experience, but, you know, low bar. And that's why in research you often see that women report satisfaction levels equal to men's because they have a different definition.
0: Yeah. And so how do we change that conversation? Because there are people who, you know, value their partner. Like there are men who genuinely care. Where do you think that comes from? Is that family culture? Are there different patterns across different global cultures? What actionable advice would we give to young people or perhaps, you know, young girls, but also young men and parents to kind of shift everybody's thinking
1: and raise that bar together? We should all think like girls. I mean, if everybody values the other other person's. And it's true that when girls have same-sex encounters, the orgasm gap disappears. Right. And what young women who have same-sex encounters would say to me was that they felt like they could get off the script. They all said that, like they'd all read the same Tumblr post. but but i i knew what they meant right they they meant they could get off that heterosexual expectation script mm-hmm. and they could create an encounter that worked for them and they were into you know this much more mutuality reciprocity and girls who have encounters with both boys and girls would really talk about that they would really point that out as a as a marked difference for them so i do think there is something to that i'm being facetious but i'm also not but look we have no education in this country at best kids learn about at best, reproduction, birth control, and STI prevention. And most of them don't learn about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there's this fear somehow that if we tell young women that sex should feel fantastic to them, whatever, however they define sex, that they're going to go do it. And that, you know, all hell will break loose or something. And that is not what happens. In fact, what research shows is that when young women feel more in control, when they understand their bodies, when they understand orgasm, when they understand their own wants, desires, needs, limits, they have a higher standard in their experiences. Yeah,
0: you'd be more likely to either stick with one partner when you you realize you can find what you need or at least you'd know you can go you know masturbate yourself and have a great time and not even necessarily need somebody else if it's an unsatisfactory experience.
1: Yeah and there was actually just an article in the New York Times the other day about the one program that evidence-based that reduces young women's risk of victimization even though we really should be focusing on men not perpetrating, but still, right. as long as that's, we live in the world, we have to worry about girls reducing their risk. Um, and what they found, I mean, there was all kinds of things that they found reduced girls' risk, but when they added uh, the Our Whole Lives curriculum, which is one of the best curricula uh, for sex, positive sexuality, relationship education, to that, to the refusal skills and all this other stuff, mm-hmm. it was Infinitely more effective. Yeah. And again, because girls, they didn't do that double think that right. girls do when they get into situations where you thought, wait, am I supposed to want this? Am I supposed to like this? Maybe just other knew. girls do. They knew. They were like, no, this isn't what I like. I don't want this. This is not a positive sexual experience. No. Right. You know, they were they didn't let the coercion go as far. Right. And again, not up to them to do that. But given that we live in the real world, I want my daughter to have every tool in her arsenal to reduce her chances of being victimized and to to increase her chances of having a really ecstatic experience. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned global patterns, yeah, there are differences. And, you know, the United States is lousy. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I did was look at the Dutch. And, you know, particularly there was a study that compared the early sexual experience of 400 randomly chosen girls at two demographically similar colleges in Holland and here. So apples to apples comparisons. And The Dutch girls had everything we say we want. You know, the girls had fewer negative consequences. They were more likely to be sober when they had sex. They were um, more likely to know their partner really well, more likely to prepare for the experience, more likely to enjoy the experience, more likely to be able to communicate during these... I mean, like, it was enough to make you go buy a pair of wooden shoes.
0: Right. I remember hearing about that and just thinking, okay, I just want to contact all of them and have them provide the advice to the girls here. Well,
1: I mean, it was a really... They said that the difference was when they talked in a one-on-one way was that Dutch parents, teachers, and doctors talked to both boys and girls early and often about sex, sexual pleasure, and the importance of love. While American parents actually didn't weren't necessarily less willing to talk to their kids, we frame all our conversations in terms of risk and danger. Mm-hmm. And the Dutch talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And for me as a parent, that was like, it hit me between the eyes. I mean, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I would have done. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I would have done. And it changed my parenting like on the spot.
0: Yeah. And so since they, you particularly mentioned they also focus on boys, how do we involve boys and men into this realization and this movement of empowerment, of pleasure and like equality? How do we get them involved as well.
1: Well, I really, I mean, I've been talking, I've, I'm writing a book on boys now, Boys and Sucks. Amazing. So I've been talking to a lot of boys and most of them, the vast, 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 vast majority of them don't want their partners to have a bad experience, mm-hmm. but they're working on the same script. So nobody, as little as we talk to girls, we talk to boys less. I mean, generally what they have heard from their parents is don't get a girl pregnant and respect women. With no, like, what does that mean? What does respect women, what what would that possibly mean? And they are completely clueless. Plus, they have this pressure to um, appear experienced. Yeah. So I just had a boy the other day who was telling, you know, we were talking about the non-reciprocal blowjob situation. And, you know, he's sort of like, well, you know, part of it is like you're in a closet. He was a high school boy. You know, you're in a closet. Of course and, you're in a closet. Right? So what do you? it's like it's easier for her to get on her knee, you know, whatever he was saying. But then after we talked about it for a while, it was that like his real fear was that he would come off as inexperienced. So he just decided he wasn't going to do anything to her or for her because he didn't want anybody to find out how inexperienced he was. And if she was just doing to him, nobody would know. And, you know, I thought, first of all, so she can be inexperienced. That's okay. But – and he was like – and I said, well, didn't she care? And he said, well, she didn't ask, so I guess she was fine. So, I mean, it's the whole dynamic. As if that's what
0: that means.
1: Right? The whole dynamic ends up being that way. So when we don't have sexuality – not sex. We have to broaden the definition of sex. It is not – I mean, that's the other thing. Sex equals heterosexual intercourse – That's not going to feel good for girls. That's not going to feel good to a 15-year-old girl, you know? So we got to broaden the notion of sexuality and really educate kids about what it is in so many nuanced ways. And that includes, you know, emotional intimacy as well as physical intimacy. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? God, I mean, I've seen it done so well in our whole lives, in individual people's classes. But we live in a country right now that, you know, we're refunding abstinence only. So for that to get into the public schools, I I mean, I don't know. And I think with the
0: boys too, a lot of it is just this invented social pressure where they go to their guy friends and they want to be like, oh, it was great. I did this. I did this. But if And they just kind of, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like one of them might actually care about her experience, but since the other guy doesn't talk about it and the other guy doesn't talk about it. Whereas if one guy could just go and be like, the most mind-blowing experience is her orgasm. Right. And just change that whole conversation. And the other dude would be like, well, shit, Bobby is giving her three orgasms. I got to fucking step up my game. I know,
1: right? And that I find it really weird, too. I mean, that was another thing that I felt like shifted somewhere in the culture that now guys brag about, like, getting off, getting a loader, I think, how hard, you know, like, what's the, what's the challenge? You know, like, why is, aren't you going like, I turned her on. So, I, I mean, it, or they'll say something horrible, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I beat up her pussy or, you know, some yeah, like that's... really like icky thing. But there's sort of oh, no, dear. no sense that, not that it's an achievement, but that, it like a that it's a
0: conquest. It sounds that that would sound a lot to me. Like if you're going to talk yeah. about,
1: you know, if you're going to if you're going to brag, right. you know, th- why aren't you bragging about right. what a great lover you are? Yeah, you know, it and just I, seems weird.
0: Yeah, and I think that the way we talk about things and the way that culturally constructed language affects. The way we perceive things, right. the way that we then think about them, and the way we then talk about them and act right. is just this, again, self-fulfilling prophecy. Totally. And when you look back at the language, you know, as you mentioned, people don't, parents don't mention vulva vagina. Right. The only times
1: we hear or them Twitterous. are pussy, yeah.
0: twat.
1: Right. In a kind of ugly way.
0: Yeah. And, or just think about. Terrible, like only negative right. words. shaming Yeah, Yeah. And so if that's all we have, then if our only associations with any word representing a vagina are negative or shameful, how are we then supposed to create any sort of
1: normal, let alone positive culture around that? I was in a sex ed class the other day, and the teacher was talking. She said, why is it that we never – when we talk about heterosexual intercourse, when we're talking about penis, vagina intercourse, we never say – and describe it as, and then the woman wraps her vagina around the man's penis. And I just, like, went, oh, my God, you're right. I never, why do we always make the woman into this passive recipient of penisness, you know? Like, what if that's what we told kids, you know? You you go, you know, you do this, you do that, you do that. And then the woman wraps her vagina around the man's penis. Right. That would totally change that conversation.
0: It also gives her the power in this situation. Yeah.
1: right? I know. It's crazy. And, I mean, even that whole, the whole thing that all, I guess other cultures learn this, even though they don't have baseball because they all get American culture, you know, that idea of the bases, right? That, right. Which, you know, the bases are changing all the time, but whatever the bases are. I was in another sex ed class where a boy raised his hand and said, um, I never thought about it before, but in baseball, there's winners and losers. So who's the loser supposed to be in sex? Right? That's cr- and, and if you even, if you play it out actually in your head, the girls aren't even the opposing team. They're the field. Right. They're right? on the same
0: They're team. They're field.
1: Yeah. So... I thought that was such an amazing moment for that boy. And this is the kind of, that was that kind of class where they're having these incredible discussions. And I really believe that kids, these this was a 11th grader, I think, totally capable of having those discussions. Um, and I really believe, like, I don't think, you know, necessarily everything's going to be perfect for him for here out. But I think he's going to go into his, you know, whether it's five minutes or 50 years, a little less a little more as a partner Mm -hmm. and a little less as an adversary who sees girls limits as a challenge,
0: as a challenge, as a competition or where there's a a winner or a loser. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to the BBXX podcast. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at BBXX.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. BBXX.